beginning in verse 15. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a Daenerys. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled. And leaving him, they went away. I'll pray. God, I am just again thankful for your life and all that you have revealed of yourself to us. And I pray as we look at your word this morning that you would truly be exalted, God, in our hearts and minds and our lives. Exalted, Lord, as we yield to you. We give you your rightful place of authority over our lives. And that we would, in love, God, in dependence, obey you. That you might truly be blessed and honored in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this section of scripture that I just read and the next um, paragraph following are really astounding. Um, remember, we're in the last week of Christ's life, um, the Passion Week, as it's been called. And this would be now taking place, this portion of scripture, on Tuesday or Wednesday before his crucifixion. Monday he came in and he um, was um, uh, presenting himself as both king and lamb of God. Monday was the day they chose the lambs for the Passover. And, um, and after a lamb was chosen, they would take that lamb home and basically essentially adopt it for the rest of the week. And that lamb would live in the house with them. And they would watch that lamb, make sure it didn't have any diseases, make sure that it wasn't crippled. And if everything was good, if there were no flaws or faults with the lamb, they would kill it and eat it. Happy ending, right? Must have been traumatic for those kids every year. Pick out a little lamb, take it home, name it maybe, make friends with it, love it, and then kill it and eat it. Yay. But those, those two or three days that they had that lamb in the house were very, very important because they were days of examination. And more than, than a few historians and, and commentaries have um, acknowledged, recognized that what's happening here and now in, in this part of chapter 22 is that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going through his own examination. And so you have the powers of the of the, um, of, the, of the country that are coming against him and trying to find some fault in him. It's an ugly passage of scripture, honestly, because they, they, are, they show no respect. They are, are hostile, ma- malicious in their intention, disrespectful. And this is the son of God. But not only is it really an, an astoundingly ugly passage, it's also a passage that you just go, this is amazing, the restraint of God, that he would subject himself to this kind of disrespect as they scrutinize him. 
I have a, a friend who's in her 60s, late 60s, and she, um, for the last um, two, three years, has been a teacher's aide in a preschool with five-year-olds. And it's almost her undoing. She says, not because the kids are active, but because they are so incredibly disrespectful. She regularly gets cussed out by five-year-olds. The worst profanity that you can think of that you would hope these kids have never heard of, they are using on her. Even giving her the finger whenever she says something to them. There would be fewer five-year-olds in the world if I were in that class, I'm afraid. <laughs> Not only is it astounding how disrespectful those kids are, it's also amazing the restraint that she shows toward them. That's what this, these two passages here are showing us. Incredible disrespect and the incredible restraint of God as he suffers their disrespect. So they're trying to trap him. Their intention is, is only malicious. And they come to him and they form this unholy alliance, this unlikely alliance between the Pharaohs and I'm sorry, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were very um, pro-Israel, and they, they um, hated the Romans. And the Romans typically hated them. But the Herodians, on the other hand, were a segment of the, of the Jewish society that favored Rome. And so these two groups, Pharisees and Herodians, could not be more opposed to each other. And yet they have a common enemy, Jesus. And so they get together and decide how they can bring down Jesus because the crowds are ready to make him king. And they have already rejected him. We know back in chapter 12, they rejected him so severely that they said that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Nothing's gotten better. And so now they come together and they say, we know what we can do. We can present this dilemma, this, um, this extreme dichotomy between Rome and Israel. So the Pharisees would have been those people who say that Rome has no right to oppress the Jewish people. They are a, an illegitimate um, authority. They have no sovereign right over Israel, and therefore they have no right to demand that we pay taxes. Whereas the Herodians would have said, yes, they do. Romans aren't that bad. This poll tax is not that high, and we should pay taxes. And so that's the question they present to Jesus Verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus perceived their malice and called them hypocrites because it wasn't an honest question. It was a question to trap him. In their minds, there was only one of two options. Either you are pro-Israel or you're pro-Rome. And in either way, they could get him in trouble. It was a dilemma only in their own minds. This is not a church-state passage. As I read this passage, that kept coming to mind. Church-state, church-state. It doesn't say anything about the church in this passage. This is an issue of God and government, not church and state. The church is not in this passage. 
If the church had never been formed, this passage would still have bearing on Israel. It is an issue of taxation, but it's an issue of God, not so much versus Rome, but God versus government in their minds. Yes, Rome in this case, but it was more basic than that. Does a civil, um, secular government have right over the people of God? And they just figure there is no way Jesus is going to get out of this quandary. And it's a drop-the-mic moment. That's the first time in my life I've ever used that phrase. I'll probably never use it again. <laughs> Show me the coin they used for the poll tax. They brought him a Daenerys, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God, give, render to God the things that are God's. Now, one thing that's happening here is that Jesus is changing the verb. They're saying, is it lawful to give a poll tax? And Jesus is going, since when are taxes a gift to the government? <laughs> and so Jesus is more honest about this than what they are. This is a rendering. This is an obligation. It is not a gift. You are not gifting the government when you pay the taxes. I'm so glad we got that cleared up. It is a rendering. It is an obligation. And Jesus is saying you are obligated to give to Caesar, to the government, what belongs to the government, and you are obligated to give to God what belongs to God. That still doesn't settle all the issues for us. We know that there are still questions on this subject of God versus government. And this is not going to be a sermon trying to wade through all of that. But what we do see here is that Jesus legitimizes both the authority of God and the authority of government. And he says it's not a, 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 a dilemma only in our own minds. There is, there, the dichotomy is a false dichotomy. Both exist for a reason, and we have obligation to both authorities. That's just the way it is. How that all works out and all the particular things, we, we will struggle with that the rest of our lives. But we should not question the fact that God is our authority, and government also has authority. And that's what Jesus is affirming here. But that's not even the main thing. The main thing... I believe that Jesus is getting at is when Caesar's image is, in, is minted on a coin, that tells us, should tell Israel, Caesar owns the coin because his image is on it. You may be in possession of it, but you have that coin because Rome minted it and Rome made it available to you. And Caesar owns it. On the other hand, you bear the image of God. You are an image bearer of God. I think this is the point that Jesus is really making here. And so he's not just saying, both are true, let's move on. But he's trying to bring it down to where he says, because you're not honoring God. You're wondering about whether you should honor Rome or not. When you don't honor God, we are image bearers of God. That gives God possession of us, authority over us, and our lives ought to image Him. Well, that silenced the Herodians. 
Hearing this, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Well, next group of enemies, the Sadducees. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, and we've all heard the joke, and that's why they're sad, you see, <laughs> came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses says, said, if, there is a, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. And what you should know about the Sadducees, not only do they not believe there's a resurrection, they also don't believe in angels and demons. And in addition to that, they, they believe the only inspired books of the Bible are the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are their Bible. They do not accept any more books beyond those five. And on the basis of those five books, they don't see resurrection taught. But what they do see is there's a law that Moses gave that says, if a man dies without leaving his wife with children, that means that his name is going to be discontinued and his property could be lost to other people. And so the little brother, the younger brother, he is to take that wife marry her and give children to her so that the brother's name can continue. And so the Sadducees took that and they go, well, it's obvious. If there were a resurrection, then there would be a continuation. But clearly there is no resurrection because the continuation is on earth through the, through the children being born. No children, no continuation. So Moses gave this law because he's telling us the only continuation for people is through children. No children, no continuation. So that's how they reasoned this. So, so it, they took a piece of scripture, portion of scripture, and they, they applied their logic to that, and they came up with what they've come up with. And so logically, it was pretty sound, but they were dead wrong. And this is important because I'm telling you, so much of theology, so much of, of theological proposition is not based on the clear teaching of God's Word. But we take a clear teaching and we extrapolate, we apply our logic to it, and we come up with conclusions of something that is not taught in God's Word. And so we're just like the Sadducees in many ways. And so they then put out this crazy hypothetical situation. Verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers with us. With us. Like, this really happened. It didn't happen. And the first married and died. And having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. Man, this, you know, you hear about, well, you've got such luck, you should go to Vegas. This is the woman who should stay away from all gambling. This is the most unluckiest woman in the world. She marries seven brothers. They each die in succession, and then she dies with no children. Unluckiest woman ever born. And so this is their question, their, their theological dilemma. They think they've got Jesus trapped just like the Herodians and Pharisees thought they had him trapped. In the resurrection, therefore, so they know Jesus believes in a resurrection. And the irony here, not only has Jesus taught on the resurrection, 
he, he says it, it, right at the end, so this is about the same time this is going on, Jesus is going to say in John 14, I am the resurrection. John 11, I'm sorry, he says, I am the resurrection. He comes back to it again in the last week of his life. But not only has he said openly about the resurrection and that he is the resurrection, he's raised the dead. And yet, despite all of that, they, they know Jesus has raised the dead. They know Jesus claims to be the resurrection. And still they come to him and say, figure that one out if you're so smart. This is another thing you should know about these Sadducees. They really thought they were the smartest people in the room, no matter who was in the room. They really elevated themselves and considered themselves to be the, the, the most intellectual people, the smartest people that Israel had. And so they thought this little scenario will undo all of Jesus' theology. Well, how it can undo Lazarus coming back from the dead, I don't know. And Jesus just cuts right through it. He answered and said to them, you are mistaken. What restraint? Idiots! That's what I would have said. <laughs> Stupid! I can think of other words that are not politically correct. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. You are mistaken. Not understanding the scriptures. The smartest guys in the room you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, which they've seen both. They've seen the power of God and they've heard the scriptures expounded. So Jesus just says, let's cut through it. For in the resurrection, you need to understand this first of all, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So let me unpack that. When we go to heaven, we are not going to be getting married to each other. These people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, seem to think that heaven is simply a better version of now. So if we're getting, getting married and having babies now, we'll get married and have babies in heaven as well. And Jesus is going, no, heaven and earth are not the same. Heaven is different. It is very different. It's not just a better version of now. So when we go to heaven, Jesus is saying, there will be no getting married. You're not going to fall in love and get married in heaven. If you were hoping for that, I'm sorry. Your bubble has just been broken. Your balloon burst. What is going to happen, when you don't, this, word, this one is passage, you can go way too far with what Jesus is saying. All he's saying is, when we go to heaven, we are not going to be getting married. He's not saying that there is no marriage in heaven. Because there are two. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that God the Father has married himself to Israel. And the offspring of Israel in Revelation 12 is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also know that Jesus, the Son of God, 
has wed himself to the church. So there are two marriages in heaven. The marriage between God and Israel and the marriage between Jesus and the church. Two marriages, not millions. Okay? God the Father, in wedding himself to Israel, wed himself to millions of people. Jesus, the Son of God, in wedding himself to the church, wed himself to millions of people. But it is never represented as millions of marriages. Jesus is married to one entity, the church. He does not have millions of brides. He has one bride. That's going to be important coming up in chapter 23 um, or 24 where we have 25 when we have this parable of the, of the ten virgins. That's going to be very important for figuring that parable out. Jesus has one bride. So to be technical and be precise, it is not accurate for any one Christian to call himself or herself the bride of Christ. I individually am not the bride of Christ. I belong to the bride of Christ. I am a member of the bride of Christ. Jesus does not have millions of brides. He has one bride. So Jesus is not saying there is no marriage whatsoever in heaven. There is the marriage of Jesus to the church. There is the marriage, it would seem, of God the Father to Israel. He's not saying there is no sexuality in heaven. He's not saying your glorified body loses its sexual distinctiveness. We had um, a former guest speaker who later moved um, to his hill and taught with us every year, Bernard Briscoe, and very loud and, um, and very booming voice and very dramatic kind of preacher. And, and if he were here preaching on this point, I have little doubt that he would actually climb up on the podium because he did this when I was a student and stand there, all six foot four of him, with his arms outstretched, and shout, There is a man in heaven! Because it's good news. There being a man in heaven opens the doors for you and I. But it wasn't just saying there is a human in heaven. There is a man in heaven. Jesus was male when he walked this earth, and he was raised male. In his glorified body, he was male. He did not lose his sexual distinctiveness in his glorified, resurrected body. And neither will we. We will be, because we are raised in the likeness of Jesus, we will be raised also with our sexuality. We will be raised male or female according to what we are now. Because God never intended for this to go away. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his likeness, in his image, male and female he created them, and he did not create them to die. So there is nothing about male or female that needs to be redeemed or undone. God meant it to exist forever for his glory because God is imaged through both. Take away one or the other, and you take away God being fully imaged in our humanity. And we will always be in the image of God. Therefore, we will always be male and female. That is not going to change. So Jesus is not saying 
There is absolutely no marriage whatsoever in the eternal state. He is not saying there is no male or female. He's just saying no one will be getting married. Then he says, verse 31, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? So this is, this is one of three times in this section of Scripture where we're being, where the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture is being affirmed by Jesus. Have you not read what was spoken, read in the Scriptures by what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, is that in the Pentateuch? You better believe it. Okay? So Jesus is just saying, okay, let's just take the scripture that you acknowledge, the first five books of the Bible. Does it say in the Pentateuch that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Absolutely. So yes, they had read this, but they didn't see the obvious implications of it. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Another phrase that I just used, and I'm not going to use it, drop the mic moment. And if, if the, I like the Western better. This is, this is after this, he's, he's blowing off his six-year. Because they, they're just, they're done. He's just filled them full of holes. Simple, simple thing. Simple thing. If there is no resurrection, Jesus is saying, then why isn't God saying, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, instead of saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Guess what Jesus is saying? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive. They're more alive right now, in fact, than they have ever been alive. Jesus will say to Martha, I am the resurrection. Even if you should die, you will live because Jesus is the resurrection. They are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. Now, here's another point. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, then the covenant that God made with them is still in force. The scripture is very clear. A covenant remains in force as long as one of the parties, as long as, as, as long as both parties are still alive. But if one of the parties dies, then the covenant is no longer in force. But these three men that the covenant was made with, Abraham originally, and then ratified with Isaac, ratified with Jacob, these three men are alive. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant is still in force. And all the implications of that are still valid for today. It has not been fulfilled. It is still in force, the Abrahamic covenant. The law has been fulfilled, but the covenant with Abraham is still in force today. That's very significant. Well, that's two tests. And Jesus has just smoked these guys with great restraint, but clarity and simplicity. 
which the truth is always simple and clear. Well, when the Pharisees heard this, that they heard that the Sadducees had been silenced, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, came with another question. Now, this guy is the only one who shows some respect toward Jesus, and you can't help but like him. In fact, Jesus will even say in, in the Mark account, he says that he is not far from the kingdom of heaven. A lawyer of all people. <laughs> we have a few lawyers in our midst. So I thought, I should look up some lawyer jokes. <laughs> I actually have a book on lawyer jokes in my office. One statement in the book says, it has been said there are only four actual jokes about lawyers. All the rest are truisms. During the cross-examination of a coroner at a murder trial, the prosecution asked, Did you take the victim's pulse before you pronounced him dead? No. Did you check his breathing? No. So you didn't make any of the usual tests to be sure the man was dead? The coroner responded, Look at it this way. All I had to examine was a brain in a jar. But for all I know, he may still be out there somewhere practicing law. <laughs> Two men in a hot air balloon got lost. We're going to get back to the point in a minute. This is a good one. Two men in a hot air balloon got lost. And so to get some direction, they dipped all the way down low enough to talk to a jogger they saw going along a country road. And they said, um, can you tell us where we are? And the jogger said, you are in a hot air balloon about 90 feet off the ground. And the first balloonist said to, the other, to his friend, that's a lawyer. <laughs> and the other guy said, how do you know? Because he gave us completely accurate and certain information that didn't help us in the slightest. <laughs> But in all seriousness, as I thought about that, I thought, that's a seminary grad. <laughs> it's, I, I honestly think that that would be more true of a seminary grad than a lawyer. He gives you completely accurate and certain information that doesn't help you in the slightest. It's also called a Sadducee and a Pharisee. Smart people who miss the obvious. The simple, obvious truth. So this lawyer asked a very good question, an honest question. I think he's sincere, and he's not just apparently trying to trap Jesus. And he says, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Because there are, um, how many are there now? 613 laws. That's a lot of laws. They remembered that number, even though I had just had trouble with it because my brain's not very good, because that's the number of seeds in a pomegranate, 613. And it's one of the reasons they had pomegranates tied to the hem of the high priest's garment, because it was a symbol of the entirety of the law. 
They also determined that the human body has 613 parts to it. And so those were things that helped them remember. Of those 613 laws, they divided them into negative and positive laws. And negative, 365 negative laws, the rest positive. But they apparently had not said which was the greatest. And so this man asked Jesus, which of those laws is the greatest? With no hesitation, Jesus says, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And while I'm at it, let me tell you the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So again, very simple question. I mean, answer to what they thought was a very, very difficult question. It's not difficult. The law, in other words, is not simply about performance. It is not about meriting God's favor. The law is not even ultimately about Righteousness and holiness. It is about a relationship, a relationship with God. The law was meant to facilitate relationship. If you doubt that, you ought to go back and read Psalm 119. There is a man who loved the law and had saw no daylight between keeping the law and loving God. Because he loved God, he loved God's word. It was as simple as that for David. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There is a direct connection, correlation between loving God and obeying God. It's not legalism to love God and obey him. It would be legalism to try to obey him and not love him. That would be legalistic. But when the heart wants to please God, then seeking to please him because we love him doesn't have a hint of legalism. Remember, Jesus kept the law. And no one ever accused Jesus of being a legalist. The law is about relationship with God. It is not about imitating God. Oh, this is what God is like, therefore you should do this. Good luck with that. We've already looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and we saw how the Sermon on the Mount was to bring us to bankruptcy, to moral poverty. So that the first beatitude would be true of us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I can't imitate God by keeping the law because I can't keep the law. But the law was given to reveal God, to show me what he was like, and to encourage me to him. Paul will say that the law is a tutor to lead us to Jesus, to relationship with him. John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, and he says, By this we know that we love the children of God. When we write them birthday cards, when we send them gifts at Christmas, when we send them kind emails and tell them how we pray for them, 
All those are wonderful things, but that's not what John says. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. When I am loving God and obeying God, that proves I love you. How does that work? Because people were never meant to be idolized. Nobody was meant to take the place of God. And it's not until God has his rightful place in my life that I can truly love others as they deserve to be loved. Not as first. God is first. See, I love my children best. I love my wife best when I love Jesus first. It's that simple. And so Jesus says, all this law, and they're important. In fact, he's going to say, um, coming up in chapter 23, he's going to, one of the scoldings that he's going to give to the Pharisees, he says, he says you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faith. So even though there is an ultimate law and a number two ultimate law, that's not to say the other laws aren't important. He says they're all important. You should do them all. But they're meant to facilitate relationship. It's about love. Now, again, don't hear me as saying we are under the law of Moses. We are not. Jesus has fulfilled the law, and the Christian is not under the law. My point is that Jesus is speaking to people who are under the law, and he's telling them it was never about the commandments and about obedience. It's about a personal relationship with God, a relationship of love that would demonstrate itself in love for others as well. It's amazing how clear and simple the truth is. The last part of this, Jesus turns the tables and he says, everybody quiet? No more questions? So I can look around the room. Any more questions? Any more hands? And he goes, okay, I have a question for you. I, I have our students at His Hill every spring. I teach 1 Corinthians and the class is divided up into different topics of their own choosing, and then they make a presentation in class. And so those seven, eight students, they will present the passage that they studied and come, you know, and tell this is what we have, conclusions we've come to based upon the passage. And they only are supposed to take half the class hour, and then the rest of the class hour is spent, the students, asking questions of that group. And I always start out by saying, and if there are no questions, I will ask questions. And so they're sitting up there, panicked. You know, you can just see stress written all over them. And they're going, ask questions, ask questions, everybody, because we don't want Charlie to ask questions. See, this is, so now you got, you got God saying, let me ask you a question. You cannot win in this situation. There's just, and so now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And this, this is theology 101. Okay, you would think, this is not a difficult question. But they're so smart, they're stupid. He says, whose son is he? They said to him, son of David. Right. That is right. But that doesn't go far enough. And he said to them, then how does David, in the Spirit, another reference to inspiration, okay, David, inspired by the Spirit of God, how is it that David, under spirit inspiration, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make, put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Silence. Oh my, all these really smart people are feeling really stupid. Why, why is this so difficult? Because they don't see, and they should. It is as plain as the noses on their faces. And I believe there were all kinds of just average Jews that understood, all going all the way back to Eve, who was not a Jew, but all the way back to Adam and Eve. They understood that the Messiah had to be God and man. This is why, I mean, that little bit of information, revelation that God gave to Adam and Eve, on that basis, Eve names Cain the God-man. And so she, from the very beginning, understood that the seed of the woman means it's not the seed of the man. And that I am going to give birth to a child where the man is not responsible here. It's God who's doing this. And she didn't understand it all. But even she, from the very beginning, got it. And we see it all the way through. When we come into the New Testament, and we've got different individuals from in the, in the temple where Jesus was being um, presented on, uh, after he was born, to calling his disciples, to even Caiaphas, the high priest, at Jesus' trials, each of these individuals are saying, are you calling yourself the Christ, the Son of God? They knew it. And yet when God is, Jesus is asking them the question now, how is it that Jesus can be both the, the son of David and the Lord of David? They're going, don't understand. But so many places throughout Scripture, they've acknowledged he has to be God and man. And there's no contradiction with that. Yes, it's a mystery. But mysteries are not inherently contradictory. And there is nothing inherently contradictory about our faith. It's a mystery, but it is true. Jesus is fully God and fully man. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Jesus, I would say, has passed the examination with flying colors. Now, I just want to make some observations here to wrap this up, some final lessons. First, directed toward the unbeliever. I never know. You know, there's more people, not a lot, but more people listening to this than just us here this morning. And there may be someone listening that has not yet acknowledged, recognized, and received Jesus for who he is. You look at this passage of Scripture and you have to understand, Jesus, by his enemies, has been examined and found faultless. That's why they're silent. See, if, there'd be any, if, if any of his responses had revealed a flaw, an error of thinking, a, 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 anything, anything that was the least bit off, they would not be silent. They'd be jumping on it. But they're silent. Their silence proves he has been examined and found faultless. Therefore, he is a worthy lamb, a worthy substitutionary sacrifice. 
This is irrefutable. You might not like him, like the Pharisees and Herodians. You might not respect him, like the Sadducees. You may not believe in him, like the lawyer. And see, that's the difference with this lawyer. I believe he kind of liked Jesus. I believe he showed respect for Jesus, but he didn't believe in him. And not everybody is hostile to the name of Jesus. They're all flavors of unbelievers. Some are openly hostile and malicious. They don't even like him. Others are just disrespectful, like a five-year-old toward his 60-plus-year-old teacher. And others are not hostile, not disrespectful. They just won't believe. But I can tell you this, we should never be indifferent about him. And none of these enemies of Jesus, or the lawyer, if we want to put him in the enemy category or not, they were not indifferent. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and your sin. We have no hope apart from him. Either we accept this sinless Lamb as our substitute and thereby be passed over in judgment. Can remember, this is the Passover lamb. Or we die in our sins. We need to look hard at Jesus. His enemies did. And I believe if any person takes a hard look at Jesus, he will be forced to face his own moral and intellectual bankruptcy. you will see that you are not nearly as good or smart as you think you are if you take a hard look at Jesus. And this is exactly why many people refuse to examine him. I have a friend who just wrote his first book, and it's on apologetics. Our students read it um, this past year, or the guide students did at least. And the first chapter talks about the existence of God. His mother-in-law is now quite elderly and a hardcore um, atheist, she would call herself. And he says to his mother-in-law, Mom, I wrote this book. Would you do me the honor of reading the first chapter? woman who claims that there is no God. But she won't examine the scripture. And she won't even read her son-in-law's book, one chapter, whom she claims to love. I have to think that's because she doesn't want to face the truth. You can like Jesus, you can respect Jesus, and not believe in him. But what about for us as Christians? Is there anything in this, in this passage, these stories, that relate to us? I believe so. Even believers can be angry with Jesus. Even Jesus, even Christians can have an argumentative, contentious spirit with Jesus. 
Even Christians can sit in judgment of God's word rather than letting God's word sit in judgment of them. And again, some of the people that this is most true of are Christians with the greatest theological education. Angry, argumentative, and passing judgment on the simple statements of God's word. Dismissive of Jesus and his word. And when you are dismissive of his word, you are dismissive of Jesus. Make no mistake about it. A Christian can be respectful and sincere, can come to church, say all the right things, and yet his heart be far from God. The problem in this passage of Scripture is a low view of Christ and too high a view of self. Clearly, the answer is to exalt Jesus. Give him his due and to humble ourselves. He is the mighty God, everlasting God, King of kings, Lord of lords. Every knee is going to bow before this one, and every tongue is going to confess, and every mouth will be shut up. I'll pray. God, I just thank you for who you are. And Lord, you've come so close, so near, so imminent in becoming man that like these, your enemies, we too so often do not see you clearly enough in your majesty. We're not just arguing with a man, but God, we are so prone to argue with you, God himself. Lord, I pray that you would be increasingly magnified in our hearts, that we would see Jesus in his glory, and that our knees would be bowed, and that our mouths silenced, and that the only thing that would come forth from our mouth would be praise, and not complaint, not bitterness towards you, not arguing, resisting, but yielding in love and presenting ourselves to you, O God, as the one who is worthy to receive all glory and honor and majesty. In Jesus' name, amen.